morning, everybody. Maybe that's the Holy Spirit. All right. So for announcements today, we first have baptism. So April 16th, if you're thinking about getting baptized or you have more questions, go ahead and text baptism to the Brookview number, and we'll send you some information. And you can also fill out on your Connect card if you have questions about it or would like more information. Now, the next one is Easter is one week away. So next Sunday, we'll be here for Easter. We have two services. So we have the 9 a.m. and we have the 11 o'clock. So not the 1030. We have two services. We have kids programs next door for both of those. So you can bring your kiddos. They're going to have fun. And then if you are coming from home, so if you are watching online, we will have one live stream, and that is for the 11 o'clock. Okay, so 11 o'clock. But invite your friends, invite your family. This is a great opportunity to come and just, he is risen. Let's find out more. Amen. Yeah, all right. So the Connect card, we want to hear from you, how you're doing, and we want to, we love going through those. So if you have any prayer requests, if you have any comments, if you want to get involved, anything, everything, send that to us. And if you will have any information or questions about baptism, that's an opportunity to put that there. So that's all I have. All right. Thanks, guys. Good morning. You know, I actually had, we put like chairs away this morning because we're like, this night, it's spring break. We got, and there's a, there's a bachelor party for our former staff member down in Arizona. And so if you're like a bachelor widow, you know, <laughs> welcome. We love you. I know it's been a hard weekend for you, so. You guys, today, so we're, today we're going to wrap up this series that we've been in for a couple of months. And to launch into it, I want to come back to something that Annie said when she spoke here a couple weeks ago. She referenced Dallas Willard's four great questions of life. And she just kind of ran through it, but I was just like fixated on it. And, and the four questions are, what is reality? What is the good life? What is a good person? And how do I become a good person? So Dallas Willard, for those of you that don't know, was a philosophy professor at USC for many years. And eventually he was the chair of the entire philosophy department at USC. So, okay, did any of you take philosophy in college? Yes, those, those guys, those professors, they're like wicked, ridiculous, brilliant, smart. And so that's him. But he was also a, a, like a humble follower of Jesus. So as a philosopher, he said that we as human beings are all asking what are, you know, these, these basic questions. And the way that we answer them, the way that we work these out in life will determine what our life looks like. And so as Annie shared them, I was just struck by like how big these are, how big of a deal they are. These are the foundational questions for life that we, we're all asking. So the day after Annie spoke, the next Monday... 
uh, Brooklyn, our 16-year-old, came home from school after a really tough day because one of her classmates, Chloe, um, died very suddenly. And it turns out that she was like one of those diamonds in the rough, just a gem of a kid, extraordinary kid, so much so that Cairo 7 came and did a story on her. And so I just want to show this to you guys. With family, friends, and classmates at Kamiak High School, mourning the loss in the of year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked. Okay, that's fine. We'll go without it. Um, yeah, so great kid. Uh, all of that to say, amazing kid. Um, just to summarize kind of what the, she was involved in like Special Olympics, uh, both locally and nationally, and just a leader in the school, super inclusive. One of those kids that made sure that all of the other kids felt welcome and included. Amazing, amazing kid. By the way, Kate is running a video this morning because yeah, yeah, nice job, Kate. Because all of our, you know, media people are on this bachelor weekend. <laughs> so, um, so on Monday after Annie was here, Brooke came home from school, and uh, there had been, they, what they had done at school is there had been all these posters, and people were writing messages about Chloe and to Chloe, and um, as you can imagine, for a bunch of high school kids, for a kid that was just deeply loved and had had such an impact, it was a very emotional thing. And so Brooke came home from school that day, and Jen and I just happened to be in the kitchen. It was a Monday, our day off. We just happened to be there. And she came home, and you could tell there were, there were a lot of emotions going on. And she said, you know, um, all the kids were writing stuff that they loved about Chloe, and it was beautiful and sweet, but it, it got me thinking, got a lot of us thinking actually, if I died, what would people say about me? Like, what, what would I want people to say? Like, who do I most want to be? What's, what is truly most important? And she seemed to be like kind of dissatisfied with her life. And so Jen and I started asking a bunch of questions. We we're like, well, who do you want to be? Like, what, what do you want people to say about you? What do you think is most important about your life? What are you doing that you want to do more of? What are you doing that you want to do less of? Are you feeling like you need to tweak something or shift something in some way? And so she said, well, I'm feeling like a lot of anxiety sometimes. She said, I'm feeling so much pressure like from teachers and administrators at school and coaches and recruiters and stuff to make sure that I'm achieving as, as much as possible and that I'm doing everything just right so that all of the doors will be open for me in my future. And I feel angsty about my grades and my basketball recruiting profile and making sure that I get into the right college and all of that. But that, she said, that's not ultimately the stuff I want my life to be about. I, you know, I, I could go to a lot of different 
colleges and still live a great life. I could play basketball in college or not and have a great life. And so I feel like I just, why am I spending, why, is there, why am I having so much angst over this stuff that doesn't really matter that much? And as she was telling us this, Dallas Willard's four great questions of life just came flooding to my mind from the previous day when Annie spoke. And so, because these were the questions that Brooklyn was wrestling through, right? Like, what is reality? What is the good life? What is a good person? And how do I become a good person? So Jen and I just kind of walked Brooke through these questions. And through tears, she said, you know what? Reality to me is that God is good and that he loves me and that he is always with me. And the good life is really, it's all about, it's not about success and achievement, it's about relationships. It's about loving people well. I, I wanna love people and serve them everywhere I go. I wanna try to make every space I walk into better for the people that are there if I can. And so we talked more about her feeling this internal pressure to achieve and she said, if, you know what, if I were to die tomorrow, Nobody would care how many points I scored per game or what my GPA was. I'm like, I want to live a really great life, and I don't necessarily need to go to the most elite college. I do want to go to college, and if possible, I want to play ball. But I'm stressing about it all way too much. So to me, being a good person is, is about building people up wherever I go as much as I can, and I will become a good person as I let Jesus teach me how to do that. I just need to stay connected to him. And it was a very long, very honest, heartfelt conversation about the great questions of life. And in our own way, all of us, because we're human, all of us are walking through these. What is reality? What is the good life? What is a good person? How do I become a good person? One day, about 2,000 years ago, Jesus went up on a hillside and he sat down to teach. And he painted a breathtaking vision for human flourishing. He pointed people to reality. He gave brilliant pictures of the good life, described what a, a good person looks like and how to become one. We, we've been in this series like Exile, a Creative Minority, now for several weeks. And the idea is that we are now living in a full-on post-Christian culture. So we've been looking at how to navigate this new cultural moment. And up to today, this series has all been based on, on the book of Daniel, like the story of these four Jewish exiles navigating life in Babylon, their faithfulness against immense cultural pressure, and the way that God used them miraculously to bless an entire empire. And yet, sprinkled all through the story are our dreams of a coming king and a coming kingdom. Like in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar dreams of this statue you guys remember back that far? Remember, he, he dreams of a statue made of four parts. And Daniel explains that the dream represents four human empires, that they will be violent and filled with injustice, but they will not last. And one day, God will send a king to inaugurate a new kingdom. Human empires will rise and fall, but this kingdom will endure. So Daniel, Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, here's your dream. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold, these four great human empires, were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. 
The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And Daniel goes on to interpret what this means. He says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. And then in chapter 7, Daniel has his own dream about four empires. It's a dream that, that parallels the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. But in Daniel's dream, each empire is represented by what? Anybody remember? A beast. Yeah. So the, each empire is represented, and these violent, like unjust human empires that are going to rise and fall. And in the middle of the dream is a vision for the coming king and the kingdom. Daniel says, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, okay, which is a description of God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And right in the middle of a dream about the rise and fall of human empires, Daniel sees, he says, one like a son of man or that can be interpreted a human one or a human-like one. And this person will be worshipped, he says, by all nations and languages. And he will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Fast forward 500 years. And a Jewish carpenter starts doing crazy stuff. The Babylonian, Persian, and Greek empires come and go, and right in the middle of a fourth empire, the Roman Empire, Jesus of Nazareth starts doing stuff that no one can explain. And here's how Matthew describes what was happening. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News, spread about, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed and he healed them. Matthew, so Matthew says Jesus is doing all this healing as he's, quote, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And in verse 17, Matthew phrases it this way. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or that can be like more loosely translated, change your life. God's kingdom is here. So and as he's traveling around, he sees hurting people and he touches them, right? And their bodies are made whole. Like this really happens. And people under spiritual oppression are liberated and released. The demon possessed, people imprisoned in darkness. And Jesus says, okay, look, that's the kingdom at work. It's here. In me, the kingdom has come and it is now among you. So crowds are gathering as Jesus is doing this stuff, like large crowds. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins to explain to them what's happening. Okay, so Matthew chapter uh, 5, verse 1 says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now picture the scene of this sermon on the mountainside that day. This, this group of broken and hurting people gathering around Jesus. These are the poor. 
They are the brokenhearted. They are the grieving. They are the formerly demon-possessed. And they've actually seen Jesus dispensing kingdom power and reality up here has now, up there has now come down here in a few lives. And they've seen it and they felt it. And now Jesus is about to explain what's going on. He's been proclaiming that the kingdom of God is, is now here and available. And people are getting excited and they want to know, okay, cool, who can participate in this? Who's eligible? What, what kind of person belongs in the kingdom? What kind of person can take part in this? And so he leads the disciples and the crowd up the mountain, and he seats, sits down to teach, which for a Jewish rabbi meant this is pay attention, this is really important. And here's how he begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if, if people are asking, who can participate in this new kingdom? Then his answer here, you guys, is pretty awesome. It's, here's his answer. His answer is, it's anyone, anyone at all. I mean, he's peering into the eyes of broken, rejected people, and he's saying, blessed are you now, because the kingdom is here. And then he looks at another person, and you, yes, you, like even you are welcome. You are invited to participate in my kingdom. And I think in order for us to sort of feel the weight of what Jesus is saying to these people, I want to put his words into like today's language. If Jesus were to walk the earth today, what might he say? How might this sound? It might sound something like this. Blessed are the billions of people that live on less than $2 a day, for they are the future of the world. Blessed are the millions dying of HIV AIDS, for they will experience proximity to God like no one else. Blessed are the sick and suffering, the chemo patients with no hair, for they will encounter God in a special way. Blessed are the high school dropouts, the GEDs, the people who can't read or write, for they are at the top of God's list. Blessed are the single moms and foster kids and the pregnant too many times at the wrong times people, for God is head over heels in love with them. Blessed are the illegal immigrants, the migrant workers, people that pull weeds for 10 hours a day, for you are God's hope for the renewal of all things. Blessed are those with special needs and the disabled, for they are the objects of God's affections. And blessed are the ugly, the fat, the odd, the elderly, the shy. Blessed are the awkward, the nerds and failures and felons. Blessed are the minimum wage fast food workers, the unemployed, the bankrupt, the in debt, on food stamps, out of work, homeless, because the kingdom of God, the gracious saving presence of God is open to you right here, right now in Jesus. And I think the, the, the words of Jesus would have stunned his first century listeners. 
They're going, whoa, 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 wait, what? God wants us? They don't even let us in the synagogue, man. God wants us. We're broken. We're nobodies. We're a mess. It would have sounded very, very odd to them. Why? Because they have never felt blessed in their entire life. According to our world, blessed people look like this, right? Here's the, here are the beatitudes of our world. Blessed are the rich, the people with excess money, the people who drive cars made in Germany and wear clothes made by people that speak Italian. Blessed are the powerful, the elite, the influential, the CEOs and celebrities, the politicians, those with leverage. Blessed are the people with the right background, the right pedigree, the right school who are smart and educated and connected, the people with lots of letters that come after their names. Blessed are the beautiful, the skinny, the healthy, the people with good skin, the actors, the models, people on magazine covers, the hip, the stylish, those with thousands of followers on social media, for theirs is the life that everybody is chasing after. Our world tells us that once you've blown it, you're, you're disqualified. You get what? Canceled, baby. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus insists nobody's disqualified. It does, no, nobody's, Jesus isn't canceling anybody. Our, our world tells us to, to fight to climb the ladder. And Jesus says, you know what? The greatest among you is actually the servant of all. So Jesus looks into the eyes of broken person after broken person after broken person and says, you know what? Blessed are you. And so maybe you need to internalize those words. To anybody here who's had an addiction, a behavior pattern that you couldn't stop that wreaked havoc on your life, blessed are you. For God's healing presence is, is upon you. To anybody here who's had an affair and you are living with the relational wreckage, blessed are you. God is with you. To anybody here who's had an abortion, blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of God. To people out of work, bankrupt, facing foreclosure, blessings on you. God's presence is all around you. If your mind is slipping and your health is failing and something's not right, God's salvation is upon you. To those of you that have lost a spouse, God's concern and presence rests on you in a special way. To those of you that have made a mess of your life, that mistakes just litter your story, come to Jesus. He will bless you and make you new. If you don't think you're good enough, clean enough, smart enough, if you don't know the Bible well enough or pray well enough, if you don't do the religious thing very well, blessed are you because the kingdom of Jesus is wide open to you. So this, this, is, just the opening, this is just the opening paragraph to this Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus is just getting warmed up. He says, you can all participate. But participate in what? Like, what, where, what's he doing with all this? Where is this going? So to that eclectic group of broken people, he continues. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. In other words, you're the salt of the earth. Be salty. You're the light of the world. 
A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus forms this little community around himself to begin something new. And he uses two metaphors for what this community will be like. He says, you'll be like salt and what? and light. Whoever is willing to follow me and be my disciple will become a part of a creative minority. I will teach you and empower you and enable you to do beautiful things. You will be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And I think that many of us, like we we hear these two images, we're like, okay, I get being light. What does it mean to be salt? You know, in, in, in our world these days, if you're salty, that's, that's not great. So let me unpack like the salt metaphor from a like first century perspective. What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Well, number one, salt brings flavor. Like used well, salt makes things taste better. I made myself scrambled eggs this morning. I have a little cheese in there. You know what it needed? Pepper. No, it needed... Like, 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 if our food is bland, we're like, yo, pass the salt, okay? Number two, salt keeps things from going bad. Like, long before the days of electronic refrigeration, the primary way to keep food from going bad was salt. I mean, in the ancient world, salt was primarily used as a preservative. Salt keeps things from rotting. It keeps things from decaying. It keeps things from going bad. Number three, salt makes people thirsty. If you eat a a bunch of salty food, before long you need a drink, man. Right? You not how many of you you know you're like Doritos eaters? I mean, come on, you better have a drink present, man, or that's gonna be an unpleasant experience. (laughs) Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. So, number one, bring flavor. Go live in such a way that you bring the flavor of God's goodness everywhere you go. When you walk into a house or a coffee shop or a gym or a restaurant or a meeting or a cubicle station or anywhere you go in your life, bring with you the goodness of God. Secondly, live in such a way that you you keep the world from going bad. Maybe you walk into a culture that's just negative or gossipy or immoral or maybe a culture where it's just kind of dog-eat-dog, or maybe you go into a culture where, where people are cheating and cutting corners, then find a way to bring goodness to it. Prevent it from getting worse. You bring something that helps preserve it. Because of your presence, you keep things from going bad. And then third, you live in such a way that you make people thirsty. People look at your life, and they become thirsty for what you have. People see you, and they think, how come you're so nice? right? How come you're so happy? How come you're so at peace with everything you've got going on in your life? How come you're so generous? How come you have so many deep friendships? How, how come you have so much wisdom, right? You make people, you make people thirsty. I want to ask you guys about something that, that's, that's a big deal. And this is rhetorical, so don't answer. Um, but I just want you to take a second and really think about this. What would you say is the most difficult thing for people in our world to believe about the Christian faith? And I know there's, there's many answers to that that are all like really important and really good. Different people struggle to, 
you know, to believe many different things. But I wonder if one of the main issues for most people is simply the idea that God is good. Because we live in a world that can be very dark. There's a lot of pain. And I think a lot of people have a hard time reconciling the darkness that they see and feel with a God that's good. And you just think about, like, some of the suffering that goes on. You know, there's, there's 25,000 children who will die today because their parents can't find them enough to eat. There will be 25,000 more tomorrow. And the question is, how are these people supposed to believe that God is good? Or what about the 1.5 billion people who have no access to medical care? Or the hundreds and thousands of children who wake up abandoned on the streets of the urban centers of our world? How are they supposed to believe that God is good? And, and of course, even in suburbia, in the middle class, middle to upper class, where many of us work and live and play, the people we work with and go to school with, the people that live next to us, they know suffering and loss too. We sometimes think, yeah, that person was born with a silver spoon in their mouth, man. It's just been nothing but joy their whole life. <clears throat> They're human beings. There is pain. Most of us are spending time every day alongside people that have pain. Sometimes we know what they've been through, and often we don't. Might be family problems, could be abuse in their past. Some of them have been mistreated sexually. There's brokenness everywhere. And the question is, how are people living amidst real darkness supposed to believe that God is good? In fact, when you think about it, what is God's plan for making it believable that he's good? Well, according to Jesus, the answer is shocking because it turns out we're the plan. And it turns out God doesn't really have another plan. The invitation from Jesus is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. The invitation is to learn to be with him so that we can become like him and then go and do the kinds of things that he would do. And of course, we will grow in these things over time. You're not going to get everything right when you start to follow Jesus. You can't. You won't. But you truly can learn over time. We're being invited by Jesus to join together as a creative minority, to love the people of this world without adopting all of their ways, to influence the culture without being conformed to it. And there are a gazillion right ways to influence the culture it's so awesome because how any of you individually goes about this is so unique from everybody else. There's a gazillion ways. I don't know how much that is, but it's a lot. <laughs> and you guys are doing so many extraordinary things in so many places. And I, I love hearing about it. I love celebrating all that's happening, hearing the stories. I love being a part of this whole thing with you. I love it. Um, so today, I, I want you to hear just one of the many ways that the kingdom is at work. Um, and so I've asked Emily Kellen to come and tell you about some of what's going on because God is up to some really cool stuff in her, through her, around her, and she gets to be a part of it. So would you welcome Emily? She comes up. By the way, Kepler is her son, Kepler. Here we go, Kepi. He's running the video for the first, first time ever today all by himself. Hi, 
Hi guys, um, I'm Emily. I have a little Montessori school on Capitol Hill and this is my 16th year doing it. I love what I do. It's allowed me to be with my kids when they were little and to give them a really good start at their school careers. And I have the pleasure of working with lovely families that value education and can afford a great start in a loving preschool environment for their kiddos. I've worked in <coughs> low-income, like daycare situations, um, as well as I've nannied and been a teacher for several really well-off families. I've seen both worlds, and there's a stark contrast in the way that kids approach the world from those two different places. Last year, I was feeling a pull to just do something about that gap in opportunities um, for families that are low-income and for those that have so many choices and opportunities. The reality is that some kids grow up in two-parent homes with enough to eat and time to think about violin lessons and all that could they could be, while others are struggling to get to school on time, try to do schoolwork with no internet or parent help, and the stress that comes with barely getting by. I kept thinking about racial injustice and how all of that is entwined. I felt so overwhelmed when I thought about how I could make a dent in that huge problem. I thought, I've got this school, and I work with two amazing women, um, and we have a really good thing here, so what can we do with that? I knew that holy discontent I was feeling was from God, and so I started praying that really scary prayer of, Lord, show me where I can help. I want to bring shalom to people that you care about. Where are these people? And I asked him to give him, me his eyes and his heart. So this idea of eyes up became my mantra in my soaping life, so my, my devotional life. And I kept catching things while reading the Bible that highlighted the simple idea of just walk about in this world with your eyes up, looking for opportunity to bring peace to hardship. Um, if you know me, I love tasks. I love getting stuff done. Um, therefore, my natural state is to kind of charge through my day with my head down, and I like to check off boxes. Um, and it takes an act of God, literally, to remind me to slow down and <laughs> to keep my eyes up. Uh, I have to make myself put the, the check boxes aside and to really see people. The more I do this, the easier it gets. It's not natural yet, for sure, but it's getting easier to recognize when I've got my head down and then I realize I need to shift my eyes up. Um, enrollment season is a busy time for me. So from December through February, I'm meeting with potential families and filling my class for the following year with kids that will fit well in um, what we do at school. At the end of enrollment time last year, I had this one opening to fill. And if you know me, I like to finish things and tie it all up with a nice bow. Um, I hate dangling unfinished things. <laughs> um, March came and went and I still had that one opening. We needed a four-year-old girl to balance out our class, and I put that on our website. April came and went, and I'd had some calls for boys or younger girls, but I had this overwhelming feeling that told me, just wait, just don't fill it yet. The peace I had of not filling that spot was for sure from God because I like to fill in holes and finish things up. I toyed with the idea of just filling it with a younger girl so that I could kind of move on to my summer rest season without this hanging on my to-do list. But again, it just didn't feel right. And so I left it open and I started referring people to other schools. And then in September, we started school. Each day we walk past um, neighboring business on a really long, ridiculously long rope <laughs> that the kids hold on to little loops on. 
uh, were super loud. Uh, kids walk right out of their shoes. And certain kids fall multiple times on the way down to the park, making like human and domino effect. And <laughs> sometimes we sing, and sometimes we make fist bumps in the air to make trucks honk at us. And we always wave and smile through the barbershop window. Um, and they stop cutting hair, and they wave at us. It's the best. One day in October, after pulling the rope of munchkins up the hill from the park, I and settled everyone down for lunch, there was a knock at the door, and I opened it to see our friend the barber there. He asked if we still had an opening for a four-year-old girl, and I said, we did. He explained that his daughter is four, and while she's at another school, she really isn't happy. She'd been bit several times and didn't want to go to school. A wave of excitement washed over me from head to toe. I could do something about that. I told him that I would come over to his shop after school and talk to him and bring him some paperwork. So after school, I walked through the door of his barbershop for the first time and found him in the middle of a haircut. I asked some questions and I shared a bit about our program and I could tell he liked what he heard, but he seemed a little hesitant and I had a feeling it was because he knew the topic of cost was going to come up. I then asked him if he'd seen the tuition cost and he nodded and then he asked, is there any sort of scholarship program or maybe some financial aid? And I asked him what he was paying at the other school and he kind of held up a zero and quietly mentioned that they are considered low income. Again, that overwhelming, overwhelming feeling of this is the family for this spot washed over me. I told him that we could work it out, and I asked when she could start. He could not believe it. He had tears in his eyes, and he was mid-haircut when he said, are you serious? It's like effing Christmas came early. <laughs> um, he and his fiance brought Liana to school the next Monday. He told me that she was a pretty cool little homie, and after our first date together, I agreed 100%. She's a gorgeous African-American girl who twirls and dances and sings through her day. I explained to her that biting was not allowed at our school and that she would be safe here. We got to hear about her other school a lot, <laughs> and other students learned that not everyone's school looks like theirs. This was and continues to be a really great learning experience for them, too. Um, and as we got to know Ronnie, that's the barber, we learned more of their story. I had no idea how perfectly God had orchestrated some much-needed relief for this family. We learned that Ronnie had adopted Liana. She had been found wandering the streets of Seattle at night at two years old. Liana and her birth mom, who's Ronnie's cousin, were living in their car. Drugs and an extremely unstable living situation landed Liana in foster care. Ronnie was notified via a letter from the state. They were asking if he wanted her. He stuck the letter to his fridge and he just kind of let it sit there for a while. He told me that he'd actually, that wasn't the first letter he's ever got. And he kept walking past it and then one day he picked up the phone and asked if they had found a home for Liana yet. The social worker said that they had not and asked if he was interested. And he said, well, I guess I am because I called. Liana was living with an incredible woman in Issaquah who helped Ronnie out in so many ways. She helped him get to know Liana, helped ease him into 24-hour care, and coached him along in the process. His fiance Jordanus, was there each, each step of the way. Right when they took custody of Liana, COVID hit. So uh, they had to stop working because people stopped getting haircuts and people stopped going to the spa where Jordanus worked. As stressful as that was, they suddenly had all this time to bond as a family. 
Ronnie shared that one, uh, that Jordanus was a cancer survivor, but that having children biologically wasn't going to be an option for her. And now it's so cool to see that she's an incredible mommy to Liana. Liana jumps into her arms when she comes to pick her up from school. Because of Liana's start to life, there are some things that are hard for her. We have a little less than a school year to get her in the best possible uh, position for success in kindergarten. We want her to love school, to lean into learning new things, to communicate with her peers well, and to persevere when she comes up with tough stuff. We're tackling some ABCs and one, two, threes before and after school a couple days a week. So she does get some one-on-one -on -one time to fill in some learning gaps that we're seeing. Ronnie and Jordanus are giving her their best. They are thoughtful parents and they care so much about who she is and how she moves around in the world. It's incredible. They're so thankful and they say yes to anything I suggest. They help her at home with little homework packs that I send home to help her catch up. And Ronnie bikes into the city with her and their dogs in a box at the front of his bike an hour early so that she can get this extra help. She loves music, and they found a neighbor who gives lessons, so Liana's gonna start piano lessons next week. Ronnie's has said, said several times that he never imagined being a parent, and he keeps saying, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> but he's doing so many great things, I can't believe it. I mentioned that I was helping lead a parenting class here at Brookview, and asked if they would like to come since they're newish parents, and he said yes. I couldn't believe that and they came, they actually came. They were so nervous when they walked through that door into church for the first time. I thought it was entirely possible that they would turn around and bolt. <coughs> but like so much of the story, they powered through and they have showed up for four weeks and they are more relaxed now. They're sharing their story and what's hard and the rest of us in the class are actually learning some great examples of parenting from them. Jason told me that Ronnie caught him before he left last week and told him that they had had a really good time. To hear how this family was woven together from brokenness and hardship and loss is beautiful. It fills my heart to be a part of their story in a small way. My heart is so full from this whole thing. If I would have just caved into my anxiety about numbers and filling that last spot, I would have missed all of this. God offered me a place in their story, and I see them as friends now. I'm rooting for this family. I'm rooting for them as parents and people that are loved by God. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to partner with my co-teachers in saying yes to a little bit of extra work. God's good work, this kingdom work, is the good life that Jesus offers, and I'm so glad that he chose me to partner with him. You guys, so last week, uh, well, the last parenting class we had, we, we do it right in here. The table's right in here. So they have to, like, walk into the sanctuary of the Lord, you know, uh, just to learn about parenting. And that's why they almost bolted the first week. <laughs> but they were at our table this last week. Uh, Emily was at a different table, and they were sitting with Jen and I. And just connecting with them was extraordinary. Um, they are so effing cool. Uh, and that word gets worked in a little bit here and there in the sanctuary of the Lord. 
Uh, but I mean, the, the staggering thing is how much horse sense they have about parenting. There's, I mean, I'm listening to them talk about what they're doing, and I'm like, that is actually brilliant. It's brilliant, and you love this little girl, and she's been a gift to you, and you're a gift to her, and Emily has been able to, to be a part of that. So I, I kind of went out of my way to connect with them the last dinner that we had, and um, at the end of the night, I was kind of looking the other direction, and he was, he'd been sitting on my right, and I, and I, you know how you can feel somebody looking at you? <laughs> and so, uh, and by the way, you're, you're trying to envision, think Macklemore. He looks like Macklemore. <laughs> He's a really cool dude. And uh, so I, I, I feel him looking at me. I look over, and he's kind of, he's just looking at me, and he's just kind of smiled and said, this was cool. And I was like, right on. <laughs> I wanted to go give him a hug or whatever, but I was like, that might be too much. <laughs> um, it's amazing the way God works when we open ourselves and we're just available. And, and this, is the, this is the good life. This is the kingdom that Jesus talks about. And I, I mean, we could go around this room, crazy stuff that God is doing through you guys. And I love, I just love being a part of this with you. It's amazing. And today, what I want to do is I just want to close this whole series um, by, by looking at two things about the kingdom of God, two things that are just important about the kingdom of God. And the first for Jesus was that the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. I mean, the only way to really make sense of the teachings of Jesus is to think about God's rule and reign as here, now, and not yet, right? Coming one day. Because in certain places, Jesus talks about the kingdom, right? Like, it's here. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's present tense. The kingdom of God has come near. In other places, he talks about it like it's a not yet thing, like it's future, like it's coming, like it's on the horizon. And so we go, well, which is it? It's both. So when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he set into to motion something wonderful. He sparked something, and he brought God's presence to the world in a new way. And bit by bit, by bits and pieces, it, it began expanding throughout the earth. But he was also clear that when the time is right, one day he will return. And when that happens, he will finish what he started. The, the rule of God will, will, will cover not bits and pieces, but it will cover everything which means compassion and love and beauty and justice and healing and kindness and joy will be made complete. Here's the second thing that we need to understand. According to Jesus, the kingdom of God is always growing. One time Jesus said, the kingdom is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. I don't know what this lady was making, but it was big time. So here's this woman making dough. How much? 60 pounds. That's a lot. So she throws a little bit of yeast in there. And at first, only tiny bits of dough have yeast. But eventually, she works it and she needs it and she works it and she needs it all the way through all of the dough. Right? Making the same point, Jesus uses another metaphor. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man, it's a very tiny seed, like the smallest of seeds, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds can come and perch in its branches. The kingdom starts as this 
tiny little seed, and then it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows. And you guys, here's why this is really important. Please listen. And when we talk about being a creative minority, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. There is a, a prevalent ideology among followers of Jesus, and you hear it kind of bubbling out of people all the time, and it goes something like this. Hey, the world is going to get worse and worse and worse. It's just going to get darker and darker and darker, and then one day, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to destroy it all and start over. Does that sound like good news to you? Is that, is, that, is that the gospel? Is that good news? No, okay, no, it's not. <laughs> and it, it's also not the message of Jesus. So where, where does that idea come? Why are there so many followers of Jesus that walk around thinking and talking like that? Well, first, people read passages in the Bible about what we could just call the last days. Right? Descriptions of how evil is going to run amok all over earth. And it's like, so people are like, you know what? I, I, read about, I read the Bible about wars. And then I look in the news and wars. And I read about famines. And I look in the news, famines. And I read about tsunamis and hurricanes and plagues. And, all, and, and, and sure enough, there's tsunamis and hurricanes and plagues and earthquakes all over. And so sometimes people will, will kind of come to me and they're like, hey, pastor, do you think we're living in the last days? And the answer to that is simple. You guys, it's really simple. Yes, we are living in the last days, and we have been for 2,000 years. The, the apostles claimed to be living in the last days 2,000 years ago. I mean, go read. Go read Acts 2. Peter stands up to talk to the people of Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit is doing all this crazy stuff on the day of Pentecost, and Peter quotes an Old Testament prophecy from Joel about the last days, and he says, there will be blood and fire and billows of smoke. He's talking about what's happening right there on the day of Pentecost. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood, and Peter says to the crowd that day, we are living, you guys, what you're witnessing, we are living in what Joel prophesied. We are living in the last days. You guys, that was 2,000 stinking years ago. Reality is, yes, we're living in the last days, and we have been for a really long time. What the scriptures mean by the last days is a period of time at the climax of human history between Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and when he returns to complete what he started. You guys, we're living, think about this, we are living in an extraordinary period of human history. We are right on the pinnacle. We are right on the edge of God's new world. We are living in the last days. And yes, evil runs amok all over, but when you think about it, that's nothing new. That's gone on for thousands of years. It's not necessarily escalating. Another misconception comes not from the scriptures, but from global affairs. I mean, people look to their news source of choice and they see all over the world and they see, they see injustice and poverty and disease and death and famine and war and reality TV and country music and all kinds of evil, <laughs> right? And we see this evil and we think, oh man, this is, the, the world's getting dark. Like, this is the darkest it's ever been. But if you ask a historian or an anthropologist, like a good one, a legit one, they'll tell you, no, actually, it's not at all. Is it dark right now? Sure. But go look, go look at history, like world human history. Is it dark right now? Sure. 
But you, 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 when you go look at history, you see incomprehensible levels of darkness. Go look at the time of Babylon and Persia. How human beings treated one another and what was going on in the world. Go study the collapse of the Roman Empire and what the world looked like then. Go study life in the Middle Ages or go study Nazi Germany. Like, it feels worse because we now have the technology to see all the darkness everywhere, right? A, a bomb goes off in the Middle East or a tsunami in Asia, and within five minutes, we can all look at our phones and see it. And it makes it so easy to think, wow, the world is the darkest that it's ever been, when in reality, it's not. But we can come to a false conclusion that the world is getting worse and Christianity is just diminishing. What did Jesus say? He said, the kingdom is like yeast in the dough. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed grown into a huge tree. Now, because we live in, in Western society, right, Europe, North America, where the institutional church is in sharp decline, it's easy to be blind to the kingdom of God expanding throughout the world. You guys, the West, did you know, we're so centered on ourselves. The West only makes up 10% of the world's population. Close to 90% of the world does not live in North America or Europe. And God is doing amazing, stinking stuff throughout the world. I mean, the church of Jesus is exploding in the global south and east. You take China. You guys know, one generation ago, there were about 2 million Christians in all of China. And then communism shuts down the church and it kicks out all the missionaries. And yet, through a creative minority of Chinese, God is on the move. One generation, one generation later, there's now an estimated 120 million followers of Jesus in China. Guys, under a hostile communist regime, through underground churches, in just one generation, the way of Jesus has spread from 2 million to about 120 million people. I have a prediction. As an empire, as an empire, China will rise and fall. But the kingdom of God will endure forever. Now, what's my, what's my point? My point is, you and I are part of the greatest movement in history. And sometimes it grows better in really tough conditions. I don't know how our culture is going to shift in the coming decades, but I know the role that Jesus is giving to those who are willing. Be salt, be light, be a creative minority. Find creative ways to love and serve and contribute. Stay true to my way and watch what I do in the world through you. I'm like, here's reality as I see it. Jesus is the rock cut out of a mountain. He is the son of man. He ushered in the kingdom of God. He is back from the dead. The Spirit of God is at work all over the planet, and Jesus will return one day and bring it to completion. You guys, that's the gospel. That is good news. Father in heaven, I cannot believe the way that you have, you have turned this world upside down in Jesus. I cannot believe it. I cannot believe that I'm a part of this with my past and my baggage and all of my junk. I'm standing on a stage talking to people about Jesus. It's ridiculous. And no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, we are called and invited 
in the same way to come and experience your grace and your empowering and your healing to become salt and light and join together with others to become a creative minority and do the impossible in this world, bring light and goodness. God, would you use us to do it? Would you give us a vision of who you are? Would you teach us, Jesus, to to be with you and to become like you and to go and do the kinds of things you would do if you were us? What a privilege. What an extraordinary thing. I thank you for Ronnie and Yordi and Liana, and I pray that you would bless Bless, bless that little family. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Amen.